when you're testing, it is really hard to lose your license, but a lot of people should, and not just the elderly. Right. Hello, this is, oh, now it's really close to me. I hope this sounds good, because it won't be this close normally. Or will it? Well, so I'll hold the mic, and then you'll oh take it. Oh, my God. Over. You have to sit here like this? Please welcome Jason Cohen, CTO and co-founder of WP Engine. Hey everyone, I'm here with Jason Cohen. So welcome to my podcast, Jason. It's great to be here. So tell me your story. What made you want to get involved in the startup world? Well, I've been doing startups for 23 years. So I got involved pretty much right out of college and had very few real jobs. So the answer is I just was compelled to do it, and so I did. And there's not really a better answer than that. And I feel like a lot of people... That's the truth. In other words, sometimes there's a compelling event, but ultimately it's it's such a irrational thing to do, to not have a regular career, to use your savings for some stupid idea you have that no one seems to agree yet is a good idea, to take that gamble. Like it's it's not actually a rational thing to do. So it must be an irrational reason like I just have to, or I, I don't like people telling me what to do so much that I'm going to do that, you know? And so for me, it was almost a compulsion. So you graduated from college, and you're like, I'm not going to get a 9 to 5. I'm just going to work 24 hours a day for the rest of my life. Left college and decided that, yes. Have you ever had a normal 9 to 5 job ever in your life with a boss? Yes, for years, because I worked through college, and I was an intern before that in high school. And just out of college, I did. And then there were different things, like the first startup didn't, I mean, it, it was okay at first, and then it wasn't. And so then I had a regular job for maybe five months. So these little snatches like that of time, just enough for me to know for sure that that's not what I want to do. I saw that with the look on your face when you said I had a regular job for five months. There was some pain behind your eyes. Do you want to tell me about that? So like in college, I worked at one place for four years. So it's not like I can't hold down a job necessarily. That thing was also a startup and I was one of two engineers there writing code. And the other person was the founder and the CEO who also just spent all his time writing code. So... That does not count. Well, it just goes to show that that's obviously not a regular job, but it goes to show that I can work with people or even have someone who's in charge. But I want it to be in an environment where I have a lot of autonomy and I'm actually doing a lot of things, probably that what I do matters, but mostly autonomy. Like, it's nice to say, I want to make a difference and I want things to be great for customers and employees. And it's true. It really is true. But I feel like if what I really wanted is to help humanity, I wouldn't be at a company in the first place, probably. And if my first love was employees, then I would want to manage as many people as possible, which is not what I want. So I think that notion of autonomy, as selfish as that is, is the real reason. I don't think that's selfish. I mean, most people, I feel like on some level, want autonomy over their jobs. Most people do not like working for someone else. That might be the best way for them to work. And I also don't think working by yourself or working for a startup or owning a startup, I don't think that means you can't work for other people. I think it means you can't be told what to do by other people ever. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, Dan Pink has all the research. You know, People want autonomy, mastery, and purpose is what his research shows, right? And so meaning autonomy, I, I have control over what's going on and make decisions whether the outcomes are good or bad. Mastery, that I can be a master of my field, meaning you know I can get better, I can grow, I can do my best work. Mastery means I'm trying to do the best work of my career. I want to do better. I want to grow. I want to have a skill and then use it. Like it's fun and, and fulfilling even to use a skill that you're good at. And then purpose, 
it matters what I do. It could be a higher purpose. It doesn't have to be, though, but it shouldn't be that I do a bunch of work and then it gets thrown away. I dig a ditch and nothing goes in it. This can't be fulfilling, even if I'm good at digging ditches. So that's the MPEX research. It makes sense to me. I do believe that. And in fact, I have my own system for how I think about teams and what it means for teams to have autonomy and accountability both. To me, it goes hand in hand. I don't want to be told what to do, but there has to be some notion in which you're in command of the situation is the phrase I use, in command. Meaning it's not that things always go well, but that the team says, yeah, but we know what's not going well. And we're saying that out loud and working on some of it, not even necessarily all of it. But we've made some decision around what of this is worth working on or fixing and what is not. Or it can't be that everyone on the team is just perfect all the time, but it can be that the manager does need to know like, well, what is going on? And again, what are we doing about it? It may not be that all the metrics are going in the right direction, but again, we know that and here's what we're doing about it and so forth. So it's just, again, this pattern of team takes responsibility for all these things. And so they're honest about it and open about it and they're all over it like they're on top of it they know what's going on and they've made some sort of decisions whether i would agree with them or not about well here's what we're going to focus on here's what we're going to prioritize here's what we're not going to and then to me that's a team that is in in command as i like to say and that's a good kind of autonomy so i do care about that and bringing it in and and have a way of, of doing that but having said that there's still a difference between great i want to work in a place like that and i don't want to work in a place So for my audience, I see the following terms thrown around a lot. And I was just wondering, as someone who has only really worked in startups and had a regular nine to five for five months, which I want to ask about, how would you define startup? And also, how would you define unicorn, founder, and entrepreneur? Yeah, that's a lot of things. Startup is probably the one that doesn't have a real definition. So different people will give you different answers. So who knows? Some people say a startup is a company that hasn't figured out their business model yet. So in other words, it's not repeatable, it's not sustainable, it's not clear how they're going to make money, it's not clear how they're going to make more money than it costs to run the thing. So you might say they're still figuring out the core thing of what they do. Some people say that Facebook is still a startup. Some people say, no, it's not. Some people say Amazon is a startup because they still run all kinds of experiments, try all kinds of new things, fail at them, and care about growth more than profit. So they're a startup because some people use all of those to define startup. And so they'd say, they're a startup and Apple's not because Apple hasn't come out with a new product that isn't just an iteration and forever and they only care about profits. So that's another way you could define it. I do think there's something about not knowing stuff, like that you haven't gotten everything figured out. Maybe it's the business model, but maybe you figured out the business model right away, but you haven't figured out how to be sustainable or continue growing. Or maybe you started in a small niche in order for the business to survive. You have to expand to some neighboring niches and still a challenge. So you're still a startup until that's known. Maybe it's till you stop doing completely new innovation, in which case the Amazon example was correct. So you can pick whatever you want. But I do think it probably should have something to do with not understanding or not having figured out all the basics yet. That's probably right. But then like as a new restaurant, a startup. So there's people, especially in Silicon Valley, who would say, no, because a restaurant can never be big. And you may not know if people are going to come to the restaurant, but fundamentally it's not a new product. So they would say it's not a startup that's just a new business. And a new business isn't the same as a startup, says people in Silicon Valley. Do you want to say that or do you want to say a a restaurant's a startup? Again, I don't know. But I think those are all interesting considerations of what kind of business is it? What do you expect out of it? What are we doing? What's our fundamental problem we're trying to solve right now? What is it? What's the nature of it? Those are interesting questions, really, no matter how you label it. For an entrepreneur, to me, it's just someone who starts a business. But I'm hesitating because our CEO, Heather Bruner, for example, she joined the company four years in. She's still here 10 years later, and absolutely the success that you see here, we're sitting in the offices now, is due to Heather. And so is she an entrepreneur? Well, for me, absolutely. 
but she didn't start the company. I know. <laughs> that founder is definitely a word that means start the company. That's for sure. But now we got that. But entrepreneur, it does mean to me building an organization probably that makes money. I suppose you could be an entrepreneur of a foundation that just doesn't feel like the right words. It may be similar in how difficult it is and, and so on, but it just doesn't feel like the words match to me. So I think it's building a company, an enterprise in that sense. But does it have to be a founder? I don't think so, but it's hard to find someone who's an entrepreneur and not a founder. But it absolutely exists. They're here. They're physically here right now. So I do think that that exists. And then finally, unicorn, that's easy because that's a term of art that, that was coined, I think, 10 years ago or so, which simply means a company that is worth a billion dollars or more. And by worth, it means you valued the stock that way, either through something like a 409A or probably you've raised money or you are public or you sold the company and in that way valued the stock. And that when you did that, it was worth a billion dollars. There's a big caveat there because people don't understand that selling a company and just raising money at a valuation, both of them sound like the value of the company, but they're absolutely not. People talk about it like it is. And when people say unicorn, that is what they mean, whether you raised at that valuation or you actually had some event like going public or selling the company or selling stock at that price. This question that I've had for a while being in Austin and being in tech and going to tech parties and conferences, I do not really see the difference between the term small business owner and startup founder. Is there an actual difference? In many ways, there's no difference. When you take your own savings and perhaps other people's money and you try to do some risky venture that probably won't work, you're in a group of people that are common in the risks that you take, the emotions that you go through, the kinds of challenges that are coming in terms of, for example, trying to recruit people to work there. I mean, it's really hard to say, there's no reason why you should be here. We're going to pay you less than you're worth. It probably won't even work. It's going to be super hard. You're definitely going to work more than you would work at Dell and get paid less than you'd work at Dell. And it probably won't work. And, and so you have to convince people to do that anyway. It's these kinds of things are just facing the, the complete unknown of what could happen and what's that going to mean and how does that affect your reputation and what does it mean when it fails and what does that mean about you? And it's hard to describe in the same way that it's hard to describe to someone without kids what it's like to have kids. And you, intellectually, you absolutely know. But actually, when you have kids, it's, of course, then it's different. It's sort of like, I forget who it was. I think it was Obama or someone. Someone said, are you ready to be president? And it's like, no one's ready to be president ever. There's nothing you could possibly do, and then you are ready. You're going to get there, and then it's going to be whatever it is. You can be only as prepared as possible, and then it's whatever. So anyone who's done that has gone through these kinds of walls of fire, these gauntlets. And so in that sense, to me, they're the same. So I personally do not care if someone's like, I'm trying to build a scalable unicorn thing, and and this person over here just has a tiny consultancy and blah, blah, blah. Some people do think one of those people are valuable or doing something hard or important and the other person is not. And I don't feel that way at all because those attributes I just said, I think that's what those folks have in common. And to me, that's what's interesting. So it is true that, of course, the business that you are in and what your goals are there and what the industry is in, those vary quite a lot. So sure, it is different. Like right now, WP Engine has 1,200 people. It's different to run this company as it is to run a one-person law firm. That is in no way the same thing. So, of course, they're different, you know. And you might say things like, oh, well, I want to talk to people who have an even closer experience to me at that. Okay, that's fine. But to say like, but they're not an entrepreneur or they somehow are less than or it was easier, that's not necessarily true at all. Very interesting. How did you convince people to work for you at the very beginning? How did you get them to do that? You know, there's a phrase that like everything you do is sales in a small company because trying to get the customer to buy the product that's not good enough is certainly sales and getting people to work there is sales. And if you raise money from other people, then that's also sales and so forth. So everything's sales. 
So I guess I can do sales. <laughs> that's one answer. So you do get everything that's in Pink's rubric if you work at a startup. Do you get autonomy? No one even has time to see what everyone's doing, much less try to tell you what to do. Can you work on your craft? I mean, you're going to work on a lot of crafts, like you're doing nothing but you know doing stuff. And for a purpose, some organizations have a higher purpose, and then there you go. But even if they don't, because most don't, they may have a mission statement, that doesn't mean they really have any kind of interesting purpose, right? That you go, wow, I'm so motivated. Usually that's not what you think when you read that. So even if you don't have that kind of higher purpose, the idea that you're in this group of one to two, three people, and all y'all have dove in and decided to do this with your lives for now, and you've all cast your lots in together, and every challenge you're going to meet together, all the lows are together, but also the highs are together. That is really exciting. And you can't work at a large company and then have that feeling. And so that is a purpose. That, that is a deep human purpose. And so at a small company, you get that. So it may fail, but I'll tell you, and maybe this is part of what I told people, I don't know, it was a long time ago, but it's very hard to find someone who's done that at a company that failed and says, I wish I never did that. That's really rare. Usually it's, oh my gosh, it was amazing. This happened. I mean, it was a roller coaster. And of course, afterwards, all the super negative stuff is muted. You don't feel as negative when you look back on it. And so it's just like, wow, that was crazy. And on your deathbed, you're not going to wish you had been at Dell instead. That's not what you're going to wish. And so when you look at it that way, I actually say this. So we have a new employee orientation that we do every month with everybody that joins WP Engine. And so in my section, one of the things I say, which I think catches them somewhat off guard is, because it's always their first you know, day, first week, first something like that, is, you know, it's funny to say that now, but everyone will have a last day at WP Engine. And I hope that's not for a long time, but everyone will leave. And at that day, I think a good question will be, did I waste my life? Was that worth doing? Like, sure, we want to get revenue and get sales. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. That's what we do physically, but is this worth it? And so I spend about you know, 20, 25 minutes answering that in my own way anyway, about how I think about customers and employees and what we do for the communities we're in, because that's our answers to that. For any experience, time is the thing that nobody, whoever they are, can buy more of. So it's the most precious thing, et cetera, et cetera. And so is it worth it? It's like this very simple to say, not always simple to answer question. And so at a startup, I mean, unless I guess maybe if the startup was had a nefarious mission or something that was making the world worse on net, okay, then that's no good. But let's suppose it's not something terrible like that. It's very hard to have regret looking back on that. And if that's the case, why not do that? Well, because you're at a point in your life where you don't want the stress, you don't want to work that hard, you value these other things you're doing in your life. Maybe you have a family and you can't afford to do that. Or There's lots of reasons why not. So there's plenty of reasons why not. <laughs> but at least that experience will be a special one that's very rare to regret. That's a pretty good reason already to give it a try, even though it's not enough money. That's so interesting. No one's ever gone to their deathbed saying, I wish I'd worked for Dell. You don't know that. Maybe someone has said that. I think you're right. I don't think anyone has actually ever said that ever, ever in the history of humankind. Thanks for picking Dell as the example, by the way, because I don't work for Dell. So you are a four-time entrepreneur, founder, startup founder, small business owner. I don't know what term you went. How did your first successful exit feel? And how about your second? So I remember in SmartBear, which is the company before this one, this was 2007. And I remember I'd started it in 2002 and I was feeding work into the fax machine and it was like an 80 page document and this is a fax machine 
because of course so i had to like feed each page in one at a time but fast enough that the modem wouldn't hang up slow enough that it would work and i remember thinking i was feeding it in my hands were kind of shaking because here's this thing i had worked on for six years put all my savings in did all this stuff i didn't even hire the first person for two and a half years i was just on my own because i couldn't afford it and uh here we are selling it for millions of dollars all this money I remember thinking as I was feeding it in, I've done it. I've achieved the pinnacle of like everything I've wanted. Because even when I was little, I was like, I want to make a lot of money, which again, sounds very selfish. I guess it is very selfish. But I think a lot of people, certainly startup founders, like do think that, like, you want to make a lot of money. And like, what about doing good in the world? Yeah, that too. The last page goes through, there's like this confirmation page that spits out that says like, it's really done. And then I just had this incredible sadness like profound, like crying. And it's not tears of joy. I'm sad. It's like it's over. And all these thoughts immediately come like, I'm not sure who I am anymore because I'm the founder of Smart Bear and now I'm not. And you're not your work. Like, well, actually, yeah, you are sometimes. And then it's like, what then happens? And and I, I also remember, fast forward just even a couple of weeks, now I have all this money. What am I going to get? And it's like, I don't want a new car. I drove the same car for 12 years. I was like, eh, it's fine. And it's like, yeah, I don't really know, like other than not looking at the right side of the menu at a restaurant, which is fun. You know, it's like, I don't really know. And so what did I do? Get a bunch of money that I don't really need or want to do something with. And I remember going like, I'm going to go on Amazon, like order a bunch of crap that I don't even need just because I want to. So there's like DVDs of movies, because again, it's 2000. So like, I'm going to have the Lord of the Rings box set. Like, I don't care about that. You know, I don't really care. It's like, who? but that's the point is I don't even need it. That's the point, you know? And so I remember I ordered all this nonsense, right? I remember another thing I ordered, like I liked Fight Club, the movie. And I was like, I know there's a book. The book's probably good. So I ordered the DVD and the book. (laughs) Now, of course, I could do all this at any time. Like I needed to sell a company to buy a DVD of Fight Club, right? Anyway. This is not a rational thought, but okay. So I remember a couple days later, the box comes because they put all this stuff in one delivery. Yeah, so I opened up this box and it's just, well, like there's DVDs and books. Again, like this is not actually that big of an order, right? Like probably the shoes I'm wearing right now is three times as expensive as the whole box, right? So this is my big, big splurge. And again, I remember opening the box, just, just like, I don't want any of this. What the hell? Now, it turns out I did like that book that Chuck Palahniuk wrote, Fight Club. I, the book was really good. So I ended up enjoying the book. Great. Like, I couldn't have done that at any time, right? And I know it's like, oh, boo-hoo, you got a bunch of money and you're sad. And of course, it's good to have money and all that. I'm just saying life is complicated. That's all. And uh, it's really common. So found all these studies. There's a one Credit Suisse did. Because these banks, they take people who are rich and they want to manage all their money. And so they do all these studies to show, look, you, we understand you. You should give us all your money. Okay, so this particular study, there's 22, I think, entrepreneurs. They all sold their businesses. Almost all of them afterwards felt this profound depression. And again, it's a sense of identity. And so this is really common, which also made me think like, well, what the hell's the point of all of this? Like you're doing all this for what? And then on this this issue of identity, I know I'm just going on, but maybe it's interesting. So on the subject of identity, there's this other interesting thing with MRIs, like people in the MRI machine and watch their brain. Then they show them a picture of placid landscapes. And so their brain is in whatever resting state, whatever that looks like. Then they show them a picture of their children. Oh, so the brain goes into some excited state, whatever whatever looking at your kids does. You're like, you know, it's exciting. And so the brain goes in this state. Then they show them the landscape, brain goes back to normal. Then they show them a logo, a picture of the logo of their company. Their brain goes into kids' state. 
specifically the shape of looking at your kids, not just excited in a generic way, kid shape. So the company is your baby. Yes, actually in your brain, it's like someone's programmed it with drugs or something to be your child and you just sold it. Or this is your identity and you just chopped off your arm and in your brain, chemically, yeah, it's like that, really, physically. So hear all that and you're like, okay, so this is real. And so what does all that mean exactly? Well, it means it's still worth doing, <laughs> I'll say. But one of the things that made me realize is something that is perhaps obvious, but okay, this is how I arrived at the thing that is obvious, which is it's the journey, not the destination. Feeding the paperwork into the fax machine is this thing that's 0.0001% of the journey. And by the way, probably won't happen ever because that's the fairy tale ending, not the usual ending. So even in the fairy tale ending, that happens almost not at all. And your whole life is the rest of the time. So it's the whole rest of the time that has to be the thing that is worthy. That's worth of your time and worthwhile and where you find some sort of fulfillment. Maybe happiness, but that's probably taking it too far. How about fulfilling? How about worthwhile? Words like that, which maybe are appropriate, even if, whether or not happy. Having that along the way must the goal because the end isn't actually the goal and the end isn't necessarily good, even in the good outcome. I am Jack's kid-shaped brain. Do you know that Chuck Palahniuk actually liked the movie version of Fight Club more than the book? And he said it was a better version of it and did what he had wanted to do in the book. I know, I've always thought that was interesting. So it felt like losing a child when you sold Smart Bear. So what made you want to keep working instead of retiring? And also, do you think you will ever retire? After selling Smart Bear, I had to stay for a year. I stayed for 18 months and then my wife was pregnant. And then I was like, oh, this is the time to turn the this is the time for the chapter to end and then there'll be a new chapter. So that's when I left and I was a stay-at-home dad for a year. So in a sense, I was retired or at least not working. You are not retired if you are at home with a newborn. No, it's definitely, working is definitely easier than that. <laughs> Having done both, working's easier. Um, of course, I wouldn't give that time back for anything. Everyone will say that. Again, this is the great measure of whether something's worthwhile. If you look back on it and say, yeah, I wish I never did that. No one says that. So again, I think I started WP Engine for the same reason as Smart Bear. I just had this compulsion just in me to do it. I will say I don't think I'll do it again, which is not what I said at Smart Bear. I didn't say I'll never do this again. It was just like, I got to take a break and see, which I did. I think especially because WP Engine got so big, and again, it's been 14 years, a long time. I'm older. Our kid is in high school. So by the time whatever winds up, we'll be empty nesters, etc. It's a different phase of life. You start looking at different ways to use your time and how much time you have left in at least in terms of being active and able in certain ways you don't want to have a doomsday thing where you start thinking everything's downhill but things aren't uphill so <laughs> so you know you have a different view of how you want to spend time i do know a lot of people who are in their 40s and they just start another company because they want to i just don't feel like i want to have that commitment again i don't want to have my time wrapped up like that again so my feeling is that I wouldn't do that again, and I'm not sure what I would do, and that's okay because I didn't know what I was going to do after a smart bear, and I don't have to know right away. I can let time pass, and that's really a huge luxury because that means lots of options are possible, lots of things can be available, and so time leads to optionality, which leads to hopefully being able to pick better things. And also, WP Engine was very financially successful, and so different orders of magnitude of things are possible, but that also changes maybe what to do. And so you start thinking about things like now giving back can mean wholly different sorts of things, different amount of impact in that. 
And so, ah. so what should that mean? So you have people like Bill Gates, for example, who's obviously on a very different level than me, but still an example of someone who's as red-blooded capitalist you could possibly imagine deciding that applying that to philanthropy is a good use of his time. So that kind of a thing is interesting. So I often think about sending the elevator back down. What does that mean? In other words, just giving money to some organization. I mean, it's okay, but is that impactful? So one of the things I think about is how can I take the things where I have expertise, experience, et cetera, and apply that to help people? Because that way I'm using something that I have besides money to help. So the obvious thing is how can we open the door wider for more people and in more locations to do things like creative business? And again, any kind doesn't have to be some crazy startup that has to be in tech, but to make jobs, even if that's one for themselves, how do we do that? Because to me, that is the combination of individual prosperity and autonomy and all the things he talked about, self-worth even, and all this kind of stuff, and economic prosperity for themselves and then their families and then, and then their extended families and then their communities. That's what that is. So that seems like an amazing impact. And I have something to help and, and, and contribute there besides money in that particular endeavor. So it's like, ooh, there's many, many, many ways in which we need to make the world better, no doubt. But okay, like I should pick a way, I think, where I can specifically help a lot in this way because of whatever experience I have. I cannot ever imagine you retiring. I just don't ever think it's going to be you, a couch and a crossword book. I just don't see that ever happening in your life. I feel like... Yeah, I'm not going to comment past that. So speaking of your immense success, how does it feel to see your company name on buildings you grew up seeing from your car seat? If I can say so, because I've already said so a few times now, you are very level-headed and not egotistical. You're very willing to talk to everyone. In fact, I just DM'd you, hey, Jason, do you want to be on my podcast? And you're like, sure, here's my schedule. It was actually easier to talk to you for my podcast than it was to talk to my 71-year-old neighbor, Grace. Getting on your schedule was easier than getting on hers. Can you tell me what has kept you so grounded? Well, I wouldn't say I'm not egotistical. I definitely have an ego. I like having the sign on the building a lot. I like looking at it. I like telling people, hey, you know, people are like, oh, what is the company you did? And, you know, for me to be able to say, you know, you're driving down Fifth Street and on Fifth and Guadalupe, you see the sign like on the building downtown. They're like, oh, I'm like, yeah. I'm like, oh, you know, you can see how impressed they are. I love that. So I absolutely have an ego. <laughs> uh, well, on Twitter or anything, people are like, "Oh, I love your your when you wrote the thing like that." Yeah, that's why I write because I want to, I want the adulation, you know. So I totally have an ego, but I guess what I feel it's a very I think it's hard to probably speak about yourself in an unbiased way, but I feel like I definitely have a big ego, but also am introspective and happy to point out and, and agree with the problems or the foibles or just what it's like, and like I just don't have any problem saying stuff like, oh, this sucked, actually. I just don't have any trouble with that. So I think it's not so much no ego as much as it is like, oh, but I try to be realistic and honest. And I don't know if I learned this from writing or not, but I have found that just if you're honest and, and, and vulnerable and so forth, it just works really well, meaning it, it's helpful for other people to see, oh, okay, so I'm not crazy and this is fine and it's not easy for other people either and so forth. That's really nice. It's just like even in, in any relationship, if you're ungenuine or don't tell the truth right at first, then even if the relationship develops and it's good, it's not actually a relationship between you and them. It's something else. So that's not a good relationship. So I did improv comedy for years here in Austin and in general, like being on stage. See, because I have an ego, so I like being on stage and look at that. Everyone's listening to me. And one of the things I find on stage is whenever you're honest like that, oh my gosh, you really just capture everybody in the room and it's just really great. I remember one time I'd met someone, I won't say who it is, but it's someone who has been on stage many, many times. This was like 15 years ago. 
anyway, he was his first time speaking at this particular conference. And I saw him sitting by himself. I didn't know him. So I just introduced myself and I'm like, how's it going? He's like, oh, I'm speaking tomorrow. I'm like, oh yeah, you're talking about whatever. And he goes, yeah. I was like, well, what are you doing? He's like, well, I, I think I'm going to go throw up behind the dumpster. I'm like, why? He's like, because I'm so nervous. I'm like, oh, okay. Here's what I think you should do. I know you're not going to do, you don't know me and I don't even, I don't know you. And what I'm about to tell you is nuts. So you probably won't do it, but here's what I think you should do. Tomorrow morning, you go on stage and the first thing you say is, Last night, I threw up behind the dumpster because I was so nervous coming out here. Because the thing is, I'm not a public speaker. I don't do this. And like, this is not my thing. But I am the founder of this company. I have a lot to share with you. I want to share it with you. I'm just not much of a speaker. So here I am. Just start like that. Because do you think the people in the audience are not on your side or totally on your side? He's like, yeah, I guess they're on my side. Of course, everyone wants you to succeed. Why aren't they here except to see you succeed? But he did it. He got on stage and he said that. And as soon as he said, you could hear the whole audience went like this, Aww. right? Like instantly won everybody's heart in the audience. So sure enough, you know, he's kind of nervous. Nobody cares. Right. And then he gets to some slide, maybe 20 minutes in and he forgets what he's going to say. And he's, I don't want to say the person's name, but, but there's someone from the crowd who's just like, we love you blank with their name. And, and someone else is like, it's okay. Just go to the next slide. This is great. Like people are like yelling out, like it's all good. So long way of saying, if you're honest, if you're straightforward like that, it works, but in a good way, not a manipulative way, like it works, you can win them over and then, you know, like, right? Like, well, maybe, because maybe, but I mean, but if it's through honesty and vulnerability, then like, okay, you've won them over for a good reason, <laughs> you know, because like you just established, like, we're going to just be honest for once. That's kind of hard. And I think a final thing, and this is true of even in a sales call, for example, where I also advocate honesty, believe it or not, because when you're honest about the things that are bad in a sales call, even then you gain credibility claiming the things that are good and people are totally down for this now. So you're like, yeah, you're right. Our product is not as good as the competitors, blah, or yeah, we have this problem that we're working on. They're like, oh, but here's what all our customers will say. Even our competitors will tell you that we good thing, good thing, good thing. And now having admitted the bad things, it's like, all right, maybe Maybe you believe them on those good things. And anyway, maybe you want to do business with this company where even the salespeople don't lie to you. That's pretty good. Maybe you can get along with this. So I just feel like in all walks of life, maybe not radical candor, there's some limit where you're hurting people and stuff like that and not necessarily that. But in general, when you trust the other person to hear what your truth is, even in a professional environment, it really works. And I guess a final thing, again, I've done improv and a lot of the reasons why those kind of things work is that it's true. There's a classic way if you're in an improv scene and you're not sure what to say, there's this classic trick, which is just say aloud what is happening. Just name what is happening out loud. So, you know, someone's like, do you want to go to the store? And they're like, no, like you never want to go anywhere. That's naming what's going on. This is a person who never wants to go anywhere. That actually helps move things along because you're naming it. And often when someone's acting crazy in the scene, you're just like, wait, did you just say that? Da, 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 da? Like, then that's funny. And in SNL skits, they're constantly like, wait, da, 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 da. just kind of naming it is funny. So saying the truth out loud, it dispel it. Like if there's a challenge and you name it, people go, oh, thank God. Because now we can just agree that's the problem. Now we can tackle it together and it diffuses that or on stage or in comedy. There's all these different ways where when you're honest or vulnerable like that, it really works in these different structures. And so I feel like I totally have an ego, but I also really believe in this notion of, of being honest. And maybe that's where that comes from. Yeah, I watched your honesty talk this morning and you were pretty clear on how you feel about honesty and making money. 
Honesty is what builds your reputation alongside your financial success. You don't have to give out details, but have you ever had an employee or founder lie to you and what did you do? Oh, of course. We've had everything. We once had someone who joined the company, started doing stuff, and it turned out he hadn't quit his previous job. And we found out because there was some sort of random HR thing, like run-of-the-mill thing, and they were just checking with the previous employer or something. I don't know whether it was like insurance or something. And they were like, wait, but he still works here. Like, what? And so we just sort of found out that. So, I mean, that's a pretty big lie. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, what you do is you just immediately, immediately fire the person. That's it. Like, just, just, it's that simple. And now you don't have to be like this. I mean, and just to be clear, like, this is not the only way to be. Of course, this is just a philosophy of life or of a company culture. You don't have to do that. In fact, it's good that different companies have different cultures because different people are different and they need places to go that they fit at. There are plenty of people where, I mean, calling them, I mean, there are compulsive liars, of course. Let's not put it so bad as that. They exaggerate a lot. They're always putting on a show. It's really bending the truth all the time, like politicians, but also there's people in marketing, there's people in sales, there's people in engineering, there's people that are managers and they really exaggerate what they've done in the past. Da, da, da. Usually I think it's because they want other people to think that they're impressive. Of course, once you see through it, you realize, oh, you're just a liar. So it doesn't work in the end. But then you just go on to the next job and you wonder if that's why they switch jobs every year. I'm not saying everyone that switch jobs every year is like that. I'm not at all saying that. But if you are like that, you might need to switch jobs every year as it catches up to you. There's a lot of people like that. And it probably sounds like I'm judging it simply because I'm not that way. But I get it. I really get it. Of course, you want to project something better than you are. And that is impressive. And also, there's fake it till you make it. Like, there's reasons to do that. So I'm not judging it. And there are some companies and cultures where that is good. You can get ahead that way. And that again, that is good. There needs to be a place for people who are like that, where they thrive. They're like, this is a great place for me. I'm thriving here. People are like this here. And there needs to be places that are not like that for people who are not like that to thrive. So it's good that there's different organizations with different cultures so that different people can find their place. For me, since it's not my way, it's not my culture, to me, it's just, oh, you're not a culture fit. That doesn't mean you're a bad person necessarily. That doesn't mean you're bad at professionally. It just means you don't fit here. And you need to go someplace, I think, where you fit. But anyway, that's not here. And it's just immediate. And that's all there is to it. Simple. Would you ever hire or work with someone again who had once lied to you if they had changed their behavior? Well, I definitely believe people can change. I don't know that people change a lot when it's not on purpose. But sometimes there's a compelling event where they change even not on purpose, and sometimes they change on purpose. I believe in that absolutely. And in fact, there's a lot of people over the years at WP Engine where things were questionable one way or another. We worked with them, and they really changed. Like years later, they're still here, and they really changed. That is one of the greatest things you can do as a manager, is to help someone genuinely get better in life. And they go on to the next thing, and they're this better person, or maybe they're a better person personally. As a result, who knows? But again, like, what can these organizations do besides make money for shareholders? That's the capitalist answer. But what else? <laughs> really, is that good? I mean, fine. Now, what else? <laughs> like, there's got to be an answer. I mean, if nothing else, we should simply endeavor to do more than that. I don't even think shareholder value should be the number one thing anyway. But even if it's one of the things, like, all right, but then what will be the next thing that we also solve for? So this, people growing and thriving, whatever that may mean, what an amazing thing. Making money is a thing. I mean, here, we've had people where no one in my family ever went to college, including me, so I never thought that I could do that. But now, thanks to WP Engine, I went to this night school, or thanks to WP Engine, I saved up and now I'm doing this. Thanks to WP Engine, now I was able to buy the house, 
where I was able to travel internationally. No one in my family even has a passport. So I didn't know what to do at all. WP Engine helped me do all that and then sent me there. I can't believe that. So these are things that are more material, but matter a lot. Those are personal things that matter, even though those are the material things. Then you go on to the things that are not material, like who you are as a person or all this kind of stuff. And again, it's just absolutely amazing. And that is worthwhile. Like what's the purpose of life? I don't know, but helping someone else, even though that's a recursive argument, it's still a pretty good argument as far as I'm concerned. So what? <laughs> yeah, we help each other and maybe that's it. That could be enough. So that's another thing an organization, a company can do. I mean, I've seen people change. I know they can. Maybe we can help them. So, okay, maybe it took them leaving and then coming back. That's fine. That's another way. We do have a lot of boomerangs, as we call them, people that left WP Engine and then come back. This is all like, I guess, hard evidence that the answer is yes. I definitely believe people change. Of course, maybe shame on you. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they're lying. Maybe you shouldn't give people another chance all the time. Maybe at some point you're the sucker. Okay, so you'll just have to make a judgment call on that. Although, if you're going to be wrong, it's better to be wrong because you are too kind, too compassionate, too willing to believe that someone deserves a second chance. I mean, if you're wrong because of that, that's a pretty good reason to be wrong. You're going to go sleep well at night knowing you were wrong on that. Well, you know what? Okay, I'll take being wrong on that. Very interesting. So I'd like to talk about startups and exaggerated actions, which is something I read your blogs are all so great. All of your blog posts. I can't believe you just give them out for free. I guess you get attention from them, which I'm giving you now. Jason is making a fist bump. How badly do you think exaggerated actions impact startups? And is it possible to recover your reputation from dishonesty, even if it's not intentional? I'm thinking about restaurants, which sounds a little wonky, but I mean, if you have a restaurant that exaggerates how good their food is and people go and it's awful... Most people are just not going to give it a second chance, and it is hard to recover from that. With certain businesses, especially things that are related to food, people are not willing to give second chances for mistakes or exaggerated actions. So what about with software companies and design firms? Can they recover from exaggerated actions and dishonesty, intentional or not? Yeah. So, I mean, there's the age old thing of it. reputation takes a long time to build up and a second to get destroyed. That's true everywhere. It's true in politics and social circles and so forth. So that's, I guess, a rule, which makes it hard because it means one misstep can erase all kinds of good things. And even as you say, good things afterwards can also still not recover. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just true in life. It's possible, I guess, for the community to garner enough support to shut you down like Yelp. Also, restaurants are very local. And so it doesn't take that many people to do something to a restaurant. So one thing about a software company is probably you're selling at least in a nation, if not globally. That means it's hard for people to shut you down because there's just not enough people who care to do that. And almost no one knows who you are at all. And so, I mean, as a startup, like that's the problem. You wish you had the problem if everyone knew who you were and had and everyone knew what your reputation was. No, the problem is no one's ever heard of you. Nobody. In your target market, no one's ever heard of you either. That's the problem. So how are you going to sell to them if they don't know who you are? You're spending most of your time just trying to get attention from anybody and mostly failing to do so. So if you get a bad reputation somewhere, like, where? No one knows who you are. <laughs> so it's okay. Like, it just doesn't really matter. Just proceed. There's so many companies where they have, like, a massive security hack. And for 48 hours, it sounds like it's the end. And no, it's not. Because then everyone forgets and it's fine. So I think you should care about the reputation for obvious reasons. But the truth is that outside of very local things where maybe the space is so small that in fact you can get a lot of people to do it, that's not true when you're selling globally. How can a new startup founder get a lot of attention? This is one of the impossible questions. 
it's one of these like, well, if we knew, then they wouldn't be hard to do a startup. <laughs> so you would just get, this is one of the critical challenges that usually you don't overcome. And so it's hard to say. Then when you look at success stories, very often it's idiosyncratic. Oh, we happened to have this big launch at this big festival this one time and we got lucky on that and then dot, dot, dot. It's like, okay, well, that's not a repeatable thing. What I generally think is that you should be able to scratch and claw your way to the first 20 or 50 customers. And by that, I mean just an enormous amount of effort, probably in different channels, even though it's super inefficient. There's no way this scales. This can't be how the company grows forevermore. But at least you can get some people in the door, some people paying. So that might mean cold calling. That might be going on LinkedIn and saying, would you talk to me about this thing? It could mean going on podcasts or guest posting stuff or otherwise trying to get just, again, one person at a time who hears you in an area. It could mean social media. It often means paid stuff, like I'll pay for Google ads or Twitter ads or da da and even though those are probably, again, low ROI and difficult forms, okay, but if I just need to get to 10 customers that are paying me, maybe it's good enough. So there's all these ways to try to do it. And then with some customers, you can start asking them things like, where do you go to find stuff like this? What things do you read online? What podcasts do you listen to? What conferences do you go to? So from there, you maybe start developing what kinds of channels you should be in oh, I should really try to guest post on these three blogs because that's what everyone reads in my target audience. Okay, now you know where to start focusing your time some more maybe. But often like you can't even get to the 20 or 50 customers or you can, but it's too hard to go further. So a whole lot of companies die at that stage. That means there's not going to be some automatic answer to that. There's a lot of generic things, but it's not a recipe. So for example, a lot of people see a problem or a pain in the world and they're like, oh, I'm going to solve that with software or with whatever. And they are right that that pain exists. And they may even be right that the software addresses the pain. But there might be this next step like, the truth is people don't really want to pay for that. The truth is people just don't care that much. So, I mean, every day you probably look at something, you're like, ugh, my phone always slips out of my hand when this happens. But I don't want one of those big cases because then it's all bulky and it doesn't fit in my pants pocket because I have stupid pockets. So really what you're saying is there should be this different kind of case that somehow fits in the pocket and doesn't slip out of your hands. Okay, but it's just not enough people care. Or it's just too hard to get attention for the case, etc. And so maybe it's just too hard and too expensive. And phone cases, oh my God, like you can't charge barely anything because there's too many cheap ones and advertising's impossible because there's already a million of them. And most people just buy whatever Apple says anyway. It's just like, this is just too hard. So you have a real pain point, you have a real product idea. And that's just me literally holding the phone right now just thinking there's a pain point maybe. So because it's so hard to get attention, because it's so hard, it's not enough that their pain exists and that you might solve it. It has to be like this screaming, crazy pain that millions of people are saying, I gotta have this. Ugh. So that when you appear, people are like, oh my God, and they tweet. And people who write these blogs, they write a blog post about it on their own volition because they're like, oh my God, this. And in other words, that it's pulled by the fact that this is so either painful or your solution is so amazing, so good that it's remarkable, as Seth Godin would say, something that people want to remark upon. And so they do. And so there you're not constantly just fighting against this tide of everyone's attention's already fully occupied. And you're trying to get a little piece of that somehow, which is almost impossible. It has to be just so good that that starts flowing. Now, after all, that's maybe the only thing worth your time anyway, something that is really needed and a solution that's so good. So maybe it's different. Maybe let's just say special and so good that it's really worth being in the world. Maybe that's the only thing worth your time anyway. So maybe it's just as well. But it's really hard to find these intersections of a real pain that you have a real interesting, different way to solve. Those are just rare.
So as a result, people build companies and most of them don't work. And there's not magical things for like, how do I build a product people like? There's not going to be a formula. What product do you wish people were building right now? It doesn't have to be for a serious problem. could be for anything. I want an app where I use it to scan my body so it knows all my measurements and things. And then a stylus, which is either an AI in the app or it's a human that's simply connected to the app, is able to help me figure out what to do, what to buy. And then because of all the measurements, when stuff comes, it's all tailored and it just works really well. That's that thing in Clueless, shares computer. It's, I feel like a lot of people really want that. I'm surprised no one has worked on that yet. Is there a startup company or product you are shocked has succeeded? Mine is Build-A-Bear Workshop. I swear to God, I remember being a child, seeing those advertisements, and I was like, no one is going to pay $70 for a bear. It's ridiculous. And it's still a company. It's very successful. I, I want to go like as an adult because I couldn't afford it as a kid. Now I'm like, I need to go to Build-A-Bear Workshop. What's your Build-A-Bear Workshop? I would say half of the consumer apps in the app store feel like that to me. I know I do not understand how normal people think about anything. They just don't understand people. And so I'll see these reviews for an app. It'll be some utility or a game or whatever. And first of all, it's like, this is the dumbest game ever, so I don't get it. But okay, I don't understand games either. Like, I know it's me that doesn't understand, you know. But then I see these reviews and it'll say things like, this game is way too expensive at $1.99. It should be 99 cents. And see, I don't understand this logic at all. At $2, it's theft. And at at a dollar, it's a great ROI. <laughs> like, I don't understand anything I'm seeing here. So, I mean, if this is a good game, it should be like 20 bucks or something, maybe, you know. So I just don't understand half of these things and why they need to exist and why they're charged that way and why people think they think about it. Yeah, I agree. I have never gotten the point of things like Candy Crush. It's like, well, you might as well just kill your time. Like, what are you doing? You're just sitting and clicking buttons on your phone. I guess, I mean, I say that when I was 23, I had this sales job that was like mind killer. Talk about wanting your time back. I look back at that time and I was going to Starbucks and I was playing app games on my phone and okay, maybe I get it. All right. What makes you really want to invest in a company? What are to you the biggest green and red flags? Obviously, you are not going to invest in Candy Crush or any company that works on Candy Crush. Candy Crush Games. Jason Cohen, not a fan of Candy Crush. The only reason I wouldn't invest in Candy Crush is it's already successful, so it's already expensive. What do I look for in an investment? Well, first of all, it depends on the stage of the company. If it's brand new, nothing much is proven. I don't usually invest at that stage. But if I did, it's with the founding team and wanting to work with them. And why is that? Well, it might be hard to articulate, actually, but there's a certain fire and a certain excitement. Maybe they have an experience that's fun, that's also fun for me to see, where they're in an industry where they're experts and I'm not. And so it's also a way to understand an industry, which is interesting intellectually. So that's possible. I don't usually do that. If it's a little bit further along, then there's something about what's going on. They've hit some sort of product market fit. Their, their growth rate has changed for some reason. There's this evidence that this thing is really going to work. And now the question is scaling it and how big could it be and all kinds of challenges that happen with high growth as opposed to figuring out what to do. But then you're looking at like, okay, is this growth sustainable? Do I think this team can help build the next team? Are they really interested in learning and growing fast because that's what's about to happen? Is the market big enough to where they can sustain this growth so it makes sense for the investment at all? Which is a funny thing. Like sometimes I feel like this company is raising money, but they shouldn't from me or anyone else because this can't be a very big company. It's a wonderful company and they should totally do it. They just shouldn't raise money because it sets expectations about how big the company needs to become the investors to make money. You know, sometimes I look at a company and like, this is a wonderful company, but they can't be the size that 
that they would need to be to raise money, <laughs> you know, which I'll tell them, of course, they don't ever listen. And maybe they shouldn't listen. I'm maybe I'm wrong. That's fine. Then there's later stage companies where a lot of things are more proved Then a lot of times it's more the business model. And then the question is, why is it that I get to invest in this thing? Because if it's a later stage, everything's going well, everything seems good, then I shouldn't even be at the table. That shouldn't be possible. So is there a problem? Like what's going on? And I don't do a lot of those either. Good reason would be something like, some institutional investor dropped out for some good reason, like a partner left or something imploded or they had problems with their LPs. And so they need to fill a $30 million hole in their round and they want to do it pretty fast. And so someone's putting together a syndicate of 100 people who collectively will fill the hole. And that's why. So like that would be a reason where, okay, that's not anything bad about the company. That's some weird financial thing. And so maybe it's okay. But often if there's a deal that seems too good to be true, there's some reason why it is. And if you don't know what it is, then that's probably a bad investment just because you don't know why it isn't. On the other hand, and I mean, this is a whole podcast on investment theory, but on the other hand, you could say, people do, a great company is probably a good buy at any price. And if you look at things like these big public software companies, the, all the typical ones people name all the time, Google, Amazon, meh, 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 they were a good buy at any price in the last 30 years. Some of them weren't public that long, but any time they've been public, every single time that was a low price. That's not what people said at the time. This is high, this is low. The truth was every single moment was the right time to buy. So that's the argument. Obviously, these are earlier stage than that. But the point being like, if it's a great company, there's no such thing as too early or, or the wrong price. That would be a reason to invest, even if it seems like it's too good to be true. But there's a lot of this theory. And, and the truth is most angels lose money. So a lot of people who just opine about this, they're losing money, actually. And so like, who cares what they think? They're probably wrong. And even professional investors, professional uh, venture capitalists, the median result is that they lose money. So most people, most of the advice, they're they're wrong. <laughs> they're not very good at this math. Anyway, that's the kind of stuff I look at. Okay. Just checking out of time, because I do want to talk about you you being a dad and the legacy, but do you think do you have time for like ten more minutes? Okay. Okay, good. I love asking questions. I don't know if you can tell. <laughs> How did becoming a father change the oh, not becoming a father. How did raising a daughter change the way you handle business and startups? Did you become more or less risk averse? And are you more likely to invest in women? I don't think having a daughter makes me more likely to invest in women. But one of the things that happened at WP Engine is very early on, meaning the first couple of hires happened to be a diverse set of people. And then diversity begets diversity. Like once you have different people, then now when other people walk in the room for an interview and they see, oh, wait, there's a lot of different kinds of people here already. That means maybe I belong. Maybe this is a place where I can be. Then you immediately get that reputation in town. This is all stuff I did not know, by the way. This is what I've discovered because this just happened. So then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is a place where, you know, whether it's women or race, blah, 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 all kinds of stuff. This is a place where actually everyone's here for real. Like walk, walk in the door and look like, there you go. See? And so that was the thing that opened my eyes. And then, by the way, since it is harder for people that don't look like me to get jobs, that means you get to hire all the best people. Because all the best people who are not white guys, straight white guys, are like, oh, here's one of the places where I know I can be, and at least that's not one of the heavy factors over my head. Oh, great. Well, then, then great people want to work here. Well, that's how you can hire better people, obviously. So it's actually a cheat code. So even if you didn't care at all about diversity and you were just hardcore capitalist, I want to make money and I care about any of that, you should still do that because you actually hire better people. So how about that? Anyway, so that's the reason why I think WP Engine looks like it does today and has had that reputation all along. And not just because I have a daughter, 
But it's very hard to say how being parents changes you because you didn't get to see what these years of your life, how that would have unfolded any other way. You didn't get to face these decisions without that. And so it's really hard to say what the counterfactual is. For me, it's probably not less risk adverse because I already had a success. So financially, it was okay to take a risk. That actually wasn't really a risk because it's okay. Had that not been the case, no, I probably wouldn't have done it. I would have just worked, right? It's like, no, now we have a family and that's it, right? So probably that. But again, it's very hard to say because I didn't have the chance to do that. Life is an experiment. You only get to run once. And so it's very difficult to say what the counterfactuals are. It can be fun to guess because it's a mechanism for introspection. What do I think I would have done? But you actually don't know. It's just an excuse for inner introspection. Don't really know. So I, I, I really don't know the answer to that. I will say that I cry more. And again, I don't think that's because it's a girl per se, but I think that's correlated. I can't prove it, but I think so. I will say I have noticed dads, especially dads with an oldest daughter or an only daughter, I feel like they have a stronger connection with their daughter and I have seen them cry at Hallmark commercials. I do think there is something about having a daughter. Not that parents of boys don't cry. I just think, I don't know, I've always felt like the dad-daughter relationship, it's very special. What are you teaching your daughter about business and startup culture, and what should parents teach their children about startup culture? Well, my daughter's 14 now, so she doesn't want me to teach her anything. I did not have a choice. I remember being eight years old, and my mom was like, okay, Paige, time to have a lemonade stand. And I got so many valuable lessons that day, Jason. We went out, we sold lemonade, and we came back, and we showed her how much money she'd made. She goes, great. My hourly rate for making lemonade was, I forget how much it was, and we paid it. She's like, you guys are idiots. We didn't discuss payment. You could have just said no and kept the money, and it's mine now. And that was such a valuable lesson. There is so many things like that growing up. I'm trying to think if there was anything else. Your time is what you say it is. And generally, if you say, oh, this is how much my hourly rate is, people will say, okay, that is how I got paid $70 an hour to babysit in college. True story. So... Before she was a teenager, when we could talk about things, we did stuff. So she had a candy store when she was little. She made it out of cardboard and she had little signs and she sold candy. We would go to Walgreens and she would compute the unit price. Like, oh, so this bag of Snickers has this unit price, so I should buy this one. And then if I set the price to this, I can make this profit. She made little spreadsheets. So she's definitely done that kind of stuff. Also, as she got older, she learned how to program things in Roblox. And then in Roblox, you can get paid for doing work in Robux, which is the in-game currency. So she did that for a while. And so she did plenty of stuff <laughs> that was kind of in that vein, again, because she wanted to. Oh, we also, another thing is really fun is Shark Tank, because right away, you start learning how to do the valuations and you start getting an opinion about whether it's high or low or what. And we played where anyone in the family can pause it and either say something or ask a question. And so it was very much just like, oh, they should never take that, or oh, that's valuation's insane. They're totally going to rip them down. And so that was a really fun way to talk about companies and what it means to have traction and be doing something versus just playing around and when it makes sense to raise money. Like, actually, it's a pretty good mechanism for that. That's a fun way that works with the family. And we did that for a long time. Now she's, you know, doesn't want to see us very much. <laughs> and, and um, is always doing whatever with her friends and and so forth. And, and that's fine. That's like, you know, she's 14. That's, that's what happens. But uh, right now, not so much. And I guess in my case, the other thing is I, I write down almost everything, you know? And so like, as I continue to do that, like someday if she cares about any topic, she'll be able to talk to some AI that's been trained on everything I wrote and she'll be able to ask that. 
You did not do that. You made an AI version of yourself in case you die. Really? Are you teasing me? You really did that. I'm saying in the future, there'll be some AI that's good at it. So, of course, people online have already done this. They do things like take all the talks I've done and all the things I've written and feed it to some AI. And then, oh, you can try to talk to Jason. And some of them are okay. Like so, so, some of them, like I'll ask something that, I don't know, maybe someone said on Twitter the other day and just kind of see, does that feel like something I would say? And sometimes I'm like, wow, that that is what I would say. That's kind of funny. And other times it's just very generic or off base. I'm like, all right, we're not there yet, but we probably will get there at some point. So with this new chat GPT thing where you can make your own chats, I did upload like a file with everything I've ever written into it. It's not very good. It gives pretty generic advice and uh, that one's not very good. But I think people are building very specific things to that that are better. And I guess the way I feel about it is it's, it actually could be quite helpful for someone if it really could reproduce those things. It's better than a search engine because instead of searching, it can thread together a specific answer to the question. It's almost like a really good search. Like, you know, bad searches, I type in terms and get stuff where the word happens to be there somewhere. Great searches, I type in terms and it's like, oh, but this is actually relevant. And then even better than that is I just wrote the article that's exactly what you wanted rather than giving you five good ones that you have to read and synthesize. So I guess that's what AI could do. I'm not an AI maximalist or optimist. I'm an AI both. Like it's going to be great and also terrible simultaneously. But I just feel like an AI doesn't have my experiences. So I'm still necessary for the AI to be trained for now. (laughs) So I guess it gives me a purpose. If I have kids, we're going to go live on a farm. and It's going to be really far away from all of human society. It's going to be me and my... I'm just kidding. I, I... I don't think I could handle I don't like dirt. You know what I'm saying? I don't like mud. I don't like getting dirty. I have many thoughts on AI that are not relevant to this interview, so I'm going to table them. I meant to ask this earlier. I want to know, what role does a romantic partner play in being successful, and what advice would you give to men and women about selecting their relationship partner, their permanent relationship partner? So we call ourselves Team Cohen, and we've called ourselves that for... 20 years. My wife and I have been together for 20 years. So I'm not a relationship expert, but hey, at least mine worked. <laughs> so I could speak to that at least. You know, that doesn't mean I know what to, what to tell other people, but ours worked. We called it that from the very beginning because the idea is like, we're both going to do stuff and support each other in the stuff. And together, that's how we're going to be able to do all the things. So she also had her own business for almost 10 years while I was doing Smart Bear. So we both had that kind of experience, which is amazing. I mean, to, again, understand the travails and the emotions of all that and really deeply understand that, you know, is amazing. And then we had our daughter and my, my wife wanted to stay home with all that. And then I was, I started WP Engine and there's way too much to do, I guess in life maybe generally, but certainly with a family for one person to do and a single parents will probably agree. And so the idea that we have all the things, meaning like, well, this is great family life. And daughter has everything she needs. And I mean attention. I don't just mean money. Not raised by somebody else and all this kind of stuff. But also we working and providing and all this kind of things. One person can't do that. It's a team. And it doesn't matter who's doing it. So in other words, if someone's at home and someone else is going to an office, together you are doing all the things. There's the kids and there's making money and et cetera. And then also my wife started doing a bunch of other stuff. So that means I got to be home instead of being at the office and take care of things. So I think when you think of it as a team, we're together, we're doing all this stuff, and it doesn't matter who's contributing what detail in terms of the outcome is that we all have this. And so it's not like, well, this is more important than that because this one's about money and that one's about something else. So the money's more important. 
No, as a team, we're accomplishing this. So there's always the phrase, you know, behind every successful person is this team of a support system that might be a spouse, it might be assistant, it might be a lot of people, you know, but like, of course, of course, because so many things have to be taken care of in life. So of course, there has to be a whole group of people. So we, we just name it that. Now our daughter's here, like she's part of Team Cohen, right? She's part of the thing. So she's 14. Does she still like being a part of Team Cohen? Yes. In, yes, in general. For example, she definitely will help clear out the table and clean stuff up after dinner before disappearing <laughs> into her own universe. What's important, the teamwork is, as opposed to like some kind of dynamic where one's more important or something. And the, the honesty part, it's hard to be completely honest. And, and maybe it's not good to be 100% honest. Maybe that's fair, depending on what it is, I guess. But if you're not your full and true self with somebody else and they don't accept you for your full and true self, like, is that going to work in the long run? It doesn't seem like it will. It could. I'm sure many, many 50-year-old marriages are in fact like that. Maybe not happy. So of course it can. But if we're trying to design relationships that are good, then should start with like whatever is true because if a person accepts you for who you really are, that is a probably a good place to begin. So you would suggest looking for someone who's team-oriented and honest? At least team-oriented with respect to you. Like, both my wife and I are the kids in school who hated being on the team in a team project. We're like, no, I'm going to be better than them. I'm going to do all the work. They're going to drag me down. Let me just do it myself. We're both like that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be someone who loves teamwork, per se, but with respect to you and the other person. Yeah. So speaking of families and children... I've got one final question for you, which is, why is it that sometimes we see successors take over thriving companies, make horrendously tone-deaf changes or choices, even spectators are like, what are you thinking, and effectively destroy their company or family legacy? I have some specific recent examples I'm thinking of, but I don't want to name them. So just think about General Electric after Jack Welch left, or how W tarnished his father's legacy. So how can startup owners avoid that and how can they ensure that their children or whoever they've chosen to take over their company are successful with it? Nobody lives forever. I guess some people are working towards eternal life, but I don't think that is because they want to work at the company they currently own for the rest of their life. Right. This is actually one of the dilemmas. Again, like, you did it and then, uh-oh, your kids don't want to run your company, which they usually don't, or... Yeah, I'm selling it, and can you ensure that whoever buys it doesn't do something? You cannot. That's what it means to sell it, that you don't get to decide. Now, I do think when you say a thriving company is purchased and they screw it up, a lot of times it looks like it's thriving on the outside, and it is not. And we see this a lot in our industry. Usually when someone's selling a company in our industry, they call us. And so knowing that if someone wants to sell in our industry, they're going to call us because they know we're one of the people who might buy it. That means we see what their finances are. So a lot of times then they'll get bought by someone else because we'll say, mm, no. And then, you know, from the outside, people are like, what? WP Engine, ah, WP Engine should have bought them. That, Whoa, they got stolen away from WP Engine. Ha. Ah. And we're like, of course, silent on the matter. And so if what next is it doesn't thrive, that may be what was already happening. It's not like the founders of these companies are going to tell the world we're struggling and shrinking and everything's hard and good person left. You have no idea what the future is. And they're not going to say that. And so are they thriving? Because you're seeing their best projected outside Instagram selves, not what's really going on. So then when it doesn't work, it's like, yeah, maybe they sold it. Now, I'm not saying it's always like that. Just saying like that happens more than people realize. Okay. So let's say it is thriving. Another thing is a lot of times if it's thriving, 
sometimes it does do pretty well. Like, Apple bought Beats, and it's fine. Amazon bought Twitch, and it's fine. Microsoft bought Git, and it's fine. Nestle bought Carmelo, and it's not thriving, Jason. Well, there you go. It can work. Uh, Usually we just don't talk about those. It's like, oh, okay. We're just going to focus on the ones where it didn't go well, which makes sense. There is actually some good studies about acquisitions, and most acquisitions, I mean like from public companies, and most of them are value destructive. Maybe because the company was overvalued, but maybe because they messed it up, exactly as you're saying. So then another question is, why did they buy it? One reason is you buy a competitor or a complement to shut it down. Compliment's an interesting one. Competitor is obvious. Like the direct competitor, you buy it and kill it. Now you have one fewer competitor. Compliments, though, are less obvious, but still true. So like, let's use the chocolate example. An obvious thing for Hershey's to do is to buy a chocolate company and shut it down. But hard candy company may be an alternative. Like if I feel like candy, I could choose chocolate or something else that's candy. So even buying something else that's candy and shutting it down might actually help, even if you don't think of it normally as a competitor to Hershey's in terms of chocolate. So it's interesting why people might do that. Another reason why people buy companies is so that a competitor cannot buy that company. So it could be sticking with brands like that. Did Coke really want to buy blah, blah drink? Is that really going to help Coke? Well, if they didn't, Pepsi would buy it or maybe some other company altogether who wants to get into the drink market, who's not currently in the drink market at all. This would give them a foray. This would give them a foothold then they would learn about that market and do more there. And Coke doesn't want that to begin. So Coke doesn't even want that company. They just don't want someone else to have that company to give whatever strategic reason. So you buy it and then if it doesn't work, oh well, that's that's fine. That's not why they bought it. Also, just simple mismanagement. That's an easy one. That's an obvious one. It's hard to integrate companies. It's it's easy to say like, oh, it's candy and or it's chocolate. Hershey's does chocolate, so this will just work. But it doesn't just work. And a lot of times you think things like, We'll just centralize things like HR, paying the bills, facilities, and legal because we all need the same things and that will be efficient. And a lot of times for various reasons, like that's not true. It had its own culture, it had its own way, and now it just isn't. And it isn't the same company. And then the good people leave and the culture the culture part disappears and melds into the big company because you literally took away the people that were doing it or they just choose to leave. And so it isn't the same company. And so it doesn't thrive, but not because the big company's bad at operating things. They're obviously not bad. They're a big company. They can't be bad at operating things. You can see their profit and loss and balance sheet. They're good at operating things. But the thing is, they took this company, and now it's a different thing because they removed this part, people left. And so they are operating it, but it isn't the same. It's amazing. Like, there, there's the old one bad apple can spoil the barrel. It can go the other way as well, of like, there's a magical person, and when they left, like, it just wasn't the same. And sometimes those are founders, or a lot of times those are founders. Sometimes it's the other people too, but founders often that way. And there's a lot of times where like when the founder left the company, even if it wasn't sold, it was just different. And it's hard to say how. It's hard to put your finger on like what is different. What is the energy difference or the motivational difference or the cultural difference? And it can be really hard to say. Like I can't name anything. I can't tell you this meeting was different and here's how. I can't really point to that, but it is. And it isn't the same anymore. And you're not going to feel that effect immediately but over years, maybe. So that can be. And it's ephemeral. It's hard to measure that, but it's possible. Then a final thing is, again, why did they buy the company? Another reason to buy it is that you have some sales channel where you sell your main product. And this company will allow you to either sell more product through your channel you have already, like it's some add-on you can sell through, 
or it just gives you a customer list. You can go the other way, sell your main product through these customers. So it's a sales reason. In that case, they often care very little about the product because the point is to just sell it. And it may be from the point of view of someone who used to buy and use the product the old way that it's no longer thriving, but it could be extremely successful financially. It's just you were never the customer of this other, so you don't get to see that. But it could be that the customer of IBM, the customer of Microsoft, and since we've said it already, the customer of Dell, that they're able to sell millions, maybe even a billion dollars worth of this stuff through their channels. It's just you were never that customer. You were never the person that the Microsoft rep was calling. So you never see that, but it's actually, in a financial sense, thriving more than ever, even if it's different culturally. So it could be. So all these possibilities are there. It's very hard to tell from the outside what's really going on. And it's hard to tell, again, like we were saying about counterfactuals, it's hard to tell what would have happened. Was the company actually okay? Was the founder burned out? Was the founder actually causing more problems by being there because they were burned out and mad all the time? This happens all the time. And so one thing I've seen is that's the case. I mean, the company may be growing, but it's like, it's like a bad scene in there. And then the company is sold somewhere. And when you talk to people who are there, they're like, you know, yeah, we sold the company and everything was different, but it was bad before also. This is just bad in a different way. It was bad before too. And then you look at that and you go, what's the good news here exactly? What's the fairy tale ending here? You just said like, if the founder stays, it's bad. And if they sell the company, it's bad. And so like, what's the good part? And that is one of the sad things about this is that it's not a fairy tale. It doesn't always end well. In fact, it often doesn't because either the company simply fails or the founder's burned out and whatever, or then they maybe sell it out of that. And then that doesn't go well. It's like, what the hell? So you, you could say, well, geez, this usually just doesn't go well. Life's horrible. You could say, but you could back off and take more of a Buddhist view and say all things come into existence and then they're there and they change and they disappear. And that's the nature of all things. And so when you're in an organization of any kind, but okay, let's say startups and it's good times, hard, struggling, emotionally hard, but these are in fact the good old days right now. When it feels like that, these are the good old days. These are what we should be enjoying or we will look back because it'll end and that might be good or bad. And that's that. And you can't say, oh, my kids have to take this over. That's silly. They want to or they don't. And we all know that most kids who take over things ruin that also. That's, it's, uh, it's really unusual that the nepotism works. And so that's not a, that, that does work sometimes, of course, but it's not a good plan. It's just like doing a company with your spouse. It does work. I know of several companies where that's the case and the companies are good and, and they're still together. Usually it's a bad idea. It's a weird power dynamic. It's usually poor choice. Usually the familial thing does, it doesn't work. So again, like, yeah, there's all these paths that are bad, but there can be ones that are good. And I think it's actually a fantastic thing. And this is another thing I would like to work on speaking of like, if I were doing something else, what would it be? This is actually one of the things. I do believe in capitalism in the sense of motivating people and inventing things. And in general, the standard of living for all people in the world increases in part because of that. I also believe in all the negatives of it. I believe in all of those things happening at the same time. And so question of what is it that we can do that tries to preserve these positive things of motivation and invention and tries to mitigate some of these other problems? What can that be? What, what is it that we can do? That's a really interesting question to me. And that's worthy of working on. And it could answer also this question of, do you sell the company to that place that's going to ruin it? Or is that actually against what you can do because of these new rules? Just on a good note of acquiring companies, we acquired a company in 2017, and with a few exceptions, everyone's still here. So it's possible to acquire a company that was a startup. By the way, they were started for 10 years before that. So I mean, like, high time folks, uh, you know, not everyone's there for 10 years, but you know, the founders were. 
and the founders are still here, the founders. And so it is possible to say, we are going to acquire this, but we believe in it. We believe in its culture. We believe in its mission. We want to invest more in it. And there can be more opportunities for people at a larger company than the startup. One of the reasons that's the case is some people there were like, well, I always wanted to be a manager. I always want to do this. I always want to do that. But we're little, so there is no opportunity for anyone to do anything. Because there's, if there's only six of us, then no one's the manager except the founder, I guess. There is, that's it. You want to be a manager? I don't care. Like, I guess you have to go somewhere else. So all of a sudden there's opportunities. So it is possible to be at a bigger company that you actually want to be at and has opportunities that you wanted to have. So is it rare? Okay, maybe, but it's possible. So maybe when you think about acquiring a company, you also want to think about, is it a culture fit? And is the mission of the company something you want to take on board? You don't have to. You can acquire the company and shut it down. You can do what you want. You bought it. But if you want it to be a success in that way, then that has to be true too, that it feels like a continuous motion. It's unusual, but if that's a filter, then it can go well. I feel like I got a free TED Talk. I listening to you. That's amazing. I do want to close on something we talked about at the very beginning. And also, it just is kind of a funny note for my listeners. At the nine to five you worked at for five months, what did you do your last day? How did you quit? Did you just like one day go, I just can't do this. Bye, guys. Was it like a Jerry Maguire moment? Can you tell me about it? So I already had a different side project. In my employment agreement, I actually wrote in, I have this little side project. It's not money. Um, and I went to the corporate lawyer and I had him sign my paper because I wanted to make sure that it was, you know, because I wrote it in. But I wanted to make sure binding somehow. I figured if their lawyer signed it, it's binding. I don't even know if that's true, but that's what I did. And so I did. And then I put it up on the Internet for fun. Again, didn't charge for it because that's that's the agreement. And then people wanted to pay for it. People would say things like, I want to use this, but it's weird that it's free. And so with that kind of motivation of like, maybe this is something people would want. Yeah, well, I'll quit and do this. I say it's easy. I did have to be convinced because at the time there was another company starting called IT Watchdogs. And the founder of that company, Jerry Cullen, he was trying to convince me to be a co-founder. It was really his company he'd already kind of started. It was like under a year old. But anyway, he's like, come be a co-founder at IT Watchdogs. You should do that smart bear thing. Like do them both. And one of them might work. So that ultimately convinced me, like I have two rolls of the dice and it turned out both of them worked. So I did that and I worked IT Watchdogs, did Smart Bear and it turned out both of them worked pretty well. IT Watchdogs was sold, but as Smart Bear started doing well, I started weaning off of that by some opportunities. So it was still hard to quit. It's hard to quit a job. But one of the arguments that convinced me was Jerry says, look, the worst case is to get that job again. Whatever job you had, you just get it. Like literally the same job, but a job like that, you have it now. So you'll get one like that and you'll be fine. So you should try that. Of course, that would happen to you. Jason Cohen, living an American fairy tale. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. It was very, very interesting. Well, thanks for having me. This is great.
now I call it meditate. Ain't that just great? And I used to. 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 